Uh, would you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1? And kids, age 3 through kindergarten, hey, you can head back for children's worship. If your parents are okay with that, probably best to check with them. <clears throat> and for the rest of us, we will begin reading this passage. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Father, we turn our attention to you, a great and awesome God. You are indeed holy. You are glorious. Grant that we may comprehend something of that glory today. Grant that our hearts, captivated by your magnificence, will trust you fully and completely with all of our lives. Move in the hearts of our children and children's worship and draw them to yourself. And don't allow anyone to leave this building today who does not yet know you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Hebrews is a, a book that was written to Jewish Christians during a time of incredible transition as they were moving from the old administration of the covenant of the grace to the new administration of the covenant of grace. It was very, very hard for them to make that transition. Um, I liken it to, you know, our congregation moving from the transition of not having these screens to having these screens. It was, it was, it was traumatic for us. It was very difficult for us to make such a... But if you can imagine what that would have been like to live in this age and how hard it was and how confusing to know what, what do we do? You know, do we, do we go with the, the old church? Do we go with the new church? What, what's, what's happening? What does all this mean? And so the, the author of the book writes to them to give them an invitation to follow Jesus and to give them rationale for why they need to follow Jesus and not simply continue on in, in the way that uh, they had been doing in, in the Old Testament, urging them instead to trust Jesus. To do that, the first thing he does is he reminds them that you can trust God's message, both the Old Testament and his message which came through the Lord Jesus Christ. The second step that he does in verses 3 through 4 is he gives this magnificent description of Jesus, the Son of God. In, in all of the scripture, I can't think of a more majestic passage in telling us, uh, theologically the term would be the hypostatic union, the, the joining of, of, of the deity and the humanity of Christ in a single person. And this, these two verses lay that out for us in, in such clear way and such majestic language that helps us to begin to see something of, of Jesus, the Son of God. And in seeing that, it invites them and us to trust the Son. We can indeed trust Him. Let's consider together how he presents this invitation. The, and the way that he does that is the first thing he does is he, he so, shows us that Jesus looks like God. 
That's where he starts out, is to show us that in verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. He's beginning to show us that he looks like God. I remember seeing an interview with Rowan Atkinson, and he was relaying an, an event in which uh, someone came up to him and, and said, Hey, has anyone ever told you that you look just like Mr. Bean? And so Rowan Atkinson looks at him and decides, okay, well, I'll just kind of answer that. And he says, well, yeah, actually, I am the actor who, who plays Mr. Bean. He says, the guy looks at him and goes, I'll bet you wish you were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can see something similar. Someone looking at Jesus Anybody ever told you, you look a lot like God? To which, of course, Jesus would look at them and say, I am. All pun intended. <clears throat> and they'd say, I'll bet you wish you were. <laughs> As a matter of fact, we have an occasion of just almost that exact same thing taking place. We read about it in, in John chapter 14. Remember in, in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And just two verses later, in verse uh, 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So a very similar situation happened in, in the life of Jesus. I think it's, we need to train ourselves to be able to see God as we look at Jesus, because he looks just like him. See, Jesus shows us God's glory. Look at what verse 3 says. And he is the radiance. He starts out with radiance. Radiance. To radiate means, and, and Merriam-Webster's dictionary tells us, to proceed in direct line from the center is to radiate. To proceed in direct line from the center. Think about that. We think about the radius of a circle. Isn't that what we're talking about? From the center to the, to the edge. It's, it's proceeding in a straight line. And to radiate is to go out from that center and think of Jesus in the radiance of God's glory that he draws us right into the center of God's glory. He, 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 he comes out from that center of the glory of God. A second uh, meaning uh, for the, the word is to send out rays. Now, I haven't done the etymological study. I'm, I'm fascinated just even as I'm thinking about it. But ray sounds an awful lot like radiant. And, and I'm just wondering if there's some level of, of connection. But we, we think about that, uh, the ray. The Greek word, a, a translation, is to beam forth. And uh, beginning to, to help us understand something like a sunbeam. Think about a sunbeam and how, how a sunbeam radiates from the center of the sun and it, and it comes out and, and, and if we follow that beam, it'll take us right back to the, to the center of the sun and we'll be able to see where that is. And yet that, that beam is also at the same time inseparable from the sun, right? Because if you separate it, the beam ceases to exist. If something comes between, the beam is no longer there. It, it ends at that point. And to, to think about that, and Jesus is the radiance. But he's the radiance of his glory. The Hebrew word for glory is, is kabod, and it means heavy. Heavy. Now remember, he's writing to Hebrews, to, to Jews. They'd be very familiar. When they would hear the word glory, they would be thinking of this idea of, of weight, the heaviness of God. 
when you try to define glory, and when, when folks that I've, I've read different commentators try and as they, they seek to describe or to define, it's something that, honestly, we use the words, but we don't really think a lot about what it means, right? And so a definition that is, is very common is beauty. And, and I think there's something to that. I, I, that that's, that's a good start. And yet, I have a sense inside my heart, when I think about beauty, I don't think about heavy, Right? They don't, they don't seem to go together. I think there's more to the idea of glory. And as I began to just trace this concept of glory through various passages of Scripture, I'm going to take you on that journey that I went through in, in my own mind. And it started in, in Exodus chapter 33. In Exodus chapter 33, God and Moses are chatting. In verse 18, then Moses said, I pray you. Show me your glory. Moses, in all that he's gone through, turns to God and, and he says, this is, this is what I long for. It isn't really very different than, than, in essence, what Philip was asking Jesus, right? Show us the Father. He's saying, show us, show me your glory. Grant to me this kindness. And he said, God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. This moment, do you see what, what Moses asked for? What was his request? I want to see your glory. And what did God say? You can't see my face. And what did he say he would hide him from? His glory. You see what God does is he, he equates his glory with his face. He brings them together and uses them synonymously. They're, they're meaning the same thing. And what, what Moses was asking for in seeing God's glory was to see his face. And think about what it means to look at someone's face. That's how we recognize people. Now, when we really get to know them, we can recognize them you know, from their cough or you know, walking. We can see them and, and we recognize their, their gait. But, but most of the time, we need to look at the face. And that's how we know that's the person that I know who it is. Because I look at their face. It, it says something about who they are. And so God, in equating his glory and his face, is saying, this is who I, you know who I am. This is, this is central to who I am. It's much more than his beauty, but it contains his beauty. That's a part of it. Well, when we think about that, and then we begin to look at places like Isaiah 6-3, which we have seen time and again already uh, today, and we're going to look at the passage again a little bit later. He says, we want to focus on holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? We, we call the song even holy, holy, holy. But what does it then say? After that, he says, the whole earth is full of your glory. And beginning to say that there's something that's more. The earth is filled with the glory of God. Which should remind us of Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the earth shows forth His handiwork, right? So we recognize that, that His glory is shown. It's, it's, it's full of His glory. That we see something of the glory of God. And I'm reminded then of, of Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. It doesn't actually use the term glory 
And yet, there's no, no question that the concept is, is central to what Paul is writing about. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. The first thing that he points out is that God has put somewhat of a knowledge of himself inside the heart of every single man. Every person knows something of God. Everyone is born with that sense. It's what uh, Augustine would say that uh, our, our hearts, uh, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. There's that recognition that we do know God. But then he goes on and he says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Isn't he just expounding on Psalm 19, verse 1? The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Isn't that exactly what he's saying? But as we begin to see it that way, we understand that glory means much, much more than just his beauty. His glory, as he's talking about it, are his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature. This is much, much more. His glory is his face, which is much more than his general figure or a shadow of who he is. His glory is the face by which he's known. And as I try to understand his glory... I, I, I tried to put it as concisely as I could. I think I fi failed in the, the concise part, but I hope I, I captured something of the accuracy of it. That the glory of God is the expression of his deity. And by deity, I mean his, his divineness, his, his godness. We asked the question this morning, what is God? Not who is God, but what is God? What constitutes deity? What constitutes divineness? What constitutes God being God? And that he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's his, that's his deity. And so we're, we're trying to see that his glory is the expression of his deity that can be experienced by others. It resembles the light and heat of the sun. And by that I mean the, the light and the heat of the sun are the ways in which we experience the sun. But we don't actually ever touch the sun, right? Because it would just destroy us. But that's the way that we know that it's there. It's the way that we're, we're aware of it. And God's glory is, is that. We continually experience God's deity through interactions with his creation. And we glorify him when we recognize his deity in the creation or when it is experienced by others through our life and words. In other words, when we show something of God show something of his deity by our life, God is glorified. And, and forgive me, I, I was warned once, don't ever assume that your congregation is interested in the same thing you are. Um, but this is the kind of thing that just has, has been marvelous in my personal worship this last week and just meditating on this concept that his glory is his very, his, the, the, the expression of his deity. And it, and it takes me to that place to begin to understand. And then, as I consider that Jesus is the radiance of his glory. Jesus is the radiance of the deity of Jesus. And it's just a, a magnificent thought that, that he shows us the glory of God. He also shows us God's nature. 
He says that he is the exact representation of his nature. The exact representation of his nature. Now, how do you, in one sub-point of a sermon, discuss the exact representation of God's nature, right? It's uh, a bit much, but I want us to see three aspects of God's nature that Jesus reveals to us. And the first is his independence. The independence of God. The name of God is Jehovah, which in, in Hebrew would translate, I am you remember in, in Exodus uh, chapter 3, Moses says to, to God, who shall I say has sent me? And God says, tell them, I am has sent you. I am. God is the only one who is in and of himself. His existence is entirely uh, within himself. Our existence is derived completely from him. The existence of everything else is derived completely from him. But his existence is contained in himself. And so he uses the name I am, which also speaks of, of the fact that, that he is outside of time, that there is no time. When we think about our, our own lives and, and try to think about now, you see, we're always thinking about the past or the future because the way that time works. How do you break down what is the shortest amount of time? Right? It finally gets to a point where we can't, we can't intellectually conceive of it. We can't experience that shortest moment. So I'm either a little bit ahead of that or a little bit behind that shortest moment. So I'm either in the future or the past, but God is always in the present. That's where he exists. That's who he is. He's, he's completely and utterly independent. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is that Word. In the beginning was. Was is in the imperfect tense in the Greek, which means at the moment that the main verb occurs, this was already existing. So he's saying at the moment that there was something called the beginning, Jesus already was being. So Jesus was being and then the start started. So that it, it, it speaks of his being outside of time. That he's, he's bigger than time. He doesn't experience time because he is the Father and he's showing us something. He and the Father are one and he's showing us something of the nature of God. He shows us something of that also in, in John eight fifty eight when the Jews are talking about uh, who he is. And he says, before Abraham was born, I am. And the Jews knew exactly what he was saying, and so they wanted to kill him because he was claiming to be God, claiming to be Jehovah at that moment, and they knew it. And that's why he brings that to them to show us. He's showing us something of the self-existent nature of God. He also shows us something of the holiness of God. Again, Isaiah 6, 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. We recognize that he's holy, holy, holy. It is part of who he is. And holiness means, first off, that you're unlike anything else. That's the first aspect of, of holiness, that it's the uniqueness. God is holy and that, that there's nothing like him. He is different from everything else. We see that about Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 14. We're told that he's the only begotten of the Father. Not one of many begottens, 
but the only begotten, unique among all of humanity. He's different. He's holy. It also means committed to God's will. Because a part of holiness is, is I'm going to be committed to, to what God wants. We see that God is holy and that he is committed to his own will. And we see in the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 6, verse 38, that he too is committed to the Father's will. As he says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus so, shows us something of the holiness of God. He shows us that God is, is independent. He shows us that he is holy. And he shows us that he is powerful. God is described in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, giving John this revelation. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So we see that, that God is the Almighty. He is powerful. But we also see that Jesus is powerful. I mean, think about the ways in which we see Jesus' power. Um, cleansing a leper, power. Casting out demons, power. Healing the lame man, causing the blind to see. Saying, Lazarus, come forth, and the dead man lives, though he's been in the tomb for four days. That's power, isn't it? Yeah. And not even the greatest of the power that he would show. In John chapter 10, he tells us something of that power. He begins to anticipate for us that power. He speaks of his life as he says, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. Jesus could say to himself, though he's died, rise. And he rises. That's the Almighty. That's the power of the Almighty. You see, Jesus shows us not just the glory of God, but the very nature of God. He shows us that He is independent. He shows us that He is holy. And He shows us that He is powerful. Can you trust that God? Can you trust that Son? You see, that's what the author of Hebrews wants us to begin to see, is that we can trust the Son because He looks like God. We can also trust the Son because He acts like God. Have you ever noticed uh, siblings with similar idiosyncrasies, though they're adults, right? I know I rarely, but occasionally I get together with my brothers and, and my mom points out, and my wife sometimes points out, uh, you guys do the same stuff. Uh, I know one that has gone in our family is we forget something. And that's, I forgot something. That's all that means. I forgot something, okay? And so that's what, you know, <sighs> oh, and, and my brothers do that, too. I mean, it's just something that we, I don't know where it came from, but, but it's just something that's, that's, that's a part of us. It's, it's, it's there. So um, also, we, we may develop uh, family values and methods of doing things. I remember telling, hearing a, a funny story years ago about uh, a young wife who was uh, making a roast, and, and she cut the ends off of the roast and put it in the pan, and her husband says, why'd you cut the ends off the ro roast? She says, I, I don't know. Mom always did it. So she calls her mom. Mom, why did we cut the ends off the roast? I don't know. My mom always did. She calls her mom. She says, why did we cut the ends off the roast? Mom said, because the pan was too small. 
just kind of the way that it goes. We end up just doing it because that's what our family does. It's, it becomes a family trait that begins to be a part of, 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 of who we are. Well, that's true with, with Jesus and, and his father. He shows something of God the Father in his actions. And in verse uh, 3, we see three actions in particular in which he shows us the Father, where he acts like God. The first is that he sustains creation. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Upholds means to bear or to carry. But notice how he upholds it. How does he uphold it? By the word of his power. How did light come into existence? God said, let there be light. God said, and it came into existence. That's how he created things. How does the sun keep it going? He says. He speaks it by the word of his power. He upholds it. He continues to sustain that which God the Father has made. And in that, he shows us the Father. He acts like the Father in sustaining creation. He acts like the Father by saving his people. It says that he made purification for their sins. He made purification for their sins. And we don't have uh, this next verse on the screen because um, I, I just thought of it this morning, but uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the... He chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. What did the Son do? He made purification for sins. What did the Father do? He planned for us to be pure of our sins, right? What was the purpose of God the Father? To save a people for himself. What did Jesus do? He saved a people for himself. He acts like God. That's what he does. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And he also reigns supreme. Looking back at verse uh, 3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The majesty is, is the kingship of God. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This draws my mind to Psalm chapter 2, which we read, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God begins to tell them, I'm going to put my son up here. That's what's going to happen. You want to rebel against my authority, but I have placed my king upon Zion. We are Zion. He is the head of the church. And so we see that God is showing us that Jesus reigns supreme. So what does Jesus say after his resurrection when he meets with his disciples? Jesus said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's saying, oh, he appointed me as king on Mount Zion, and now I reign supreme. So Jesus, Jesus looks like God, and Jesus acts like God, well, maybe the proper conclusion is we ought to treat him as God. What do you say? Look at verse 4. 
having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Later in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 2, verse 11, he's going to reveal to us that Jesus is our brother. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he's not ashamed to, be call, to call them brethren. That's a beautiful thing. We like that. We live in an age that, that glories in Jesus as our elder brother, right? It is, it is very much a part of the theology, and, and there's, there's goodness to that. We should uh, glory in that intimacy that we have with Jesus the Christ. At the same time, we must not allow familiarity to breed contempt. He's our brother, and yet, he is God Almighty. And we just are not. And we must never lose sight of that. For look at what he says. He says he's become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. He's become much greater than the angels. So think this all through. Jesus existed with the Father from before there was time. In perfect uh, joy and, and contentment, everything was great. And then he decided, well, let's make time. Okay, so time comes, and space comes, and man comes, and, and the whole thing comes. And then Jesus has to redeem a people, so Jesus now enters into time, enters into space in a body, lives a life, dies, resurrected, and takes that same body up into heaven. So there's been this change. Okay, this, is, this is what's taken place. At that moment that he is resurrected, now... In his incarnation, he, became, he humbled himself, from what Philippians 2 tells us, and made himself a little lower than the angels. But now, in his resurrection, he's better than the angels. He's made better, greater, more than, much more than the angels. He is Lord. And to recognize that that's precisely what, what we're seeing in this moment, is that Jesus is Lord. We treat Him as God because He is Lord. We don't use terms like Lord very often, except just as an honorific title. To, to, to understand that He is Lord means He has absolute authority. And when I call Him my Lord, I am saying, you have absolute authority in my life even when I don't understand. Even when I don't understand the hardship that I have to walk through. A friend was, uh, who's going through grief was, was talking about one of the psalms and in his native language, uh, the translation of the psalm, ours, ours said that you were stripped, but his native language says it's, it's completely stripped of everything, that nothing is left, and then I will call upon you. And how he, and as he's going through this great grief, understood that psalm so much more. And saying, you are Lord, and you have, you have the right to strip me of everything. And I believe that you're doing it for my good, and I will trust you, because you are my Lord. You are my Lord, and I will follow you and obey you, whatever you command, even when I don't understand that command. We live in an age in which the commands of God are in direct opposition to the uh, values of our society, are they not? And they're coming under scrutiny more and more, and, and, and more and more the society is concluding that the values of, the, of, of Christianity are false and are harmful. And we find ourselves in this, this conflict. What do I do? 
What do I believe? Well, I believe what the Bible has said in things like sexual ethics. Am I going to believe what the Bible says about sexual ethics? Or am I going to follow what my society says about sexual ethics? Am I going to allow the Word of God to dictate? Am I going to allow God as my Lord, Jesus as my Lord, to dictate this is what is true when it comes to our sexuality? Now, we live in an age which is completely and utterly obsessed with sexuality, right? I mean, it's just all all that we talk about. We think that it's the very center of who we are. Uh, I read an article just this last week who rightly points out uh, we're Freudian completely. Freud felt that, that central to our identity is we're sexual creatures more than anything else. And so we become so obsessed with that and everything seems to turn around. But that's not what everything turns around. Not only does he give us commands about our sexuality, but he also gives us commands about things like forgiveness. And forgiveness doesn't seem like a good idea, does it? Forgiveness, I'm forgiving someone who, the only reason I'm going to forgive them is they've done actually something to hurt me. Why would I forgive that person? That doesn't make any sense at all. No, it doesn't. And yet he says, be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. It seems like uh, the Lord's Prayer has something to say about that, right? Ladies who are in the women's Bible study, uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtor. For if we don't forgive those who've wronged us, how are we forgiving? I messed that all up, but uh, the concept is there, right? It's an important part of our lives. And, And isn't that central to the gospel message. Whereas our sexuality isn't central to the gospel message. It's an important thing because the sin we commit in our body. But, but this is key. And yet God commands me to forgive. And I have to begin to do that. Why? Because he's Lord. He has the right to command me. And he's good. So I believe that him commanding me to forgive is actually good for me. I don't know how. But that's why he's Lord. And I'm just going to trust him. I'm going to treat him as God because he is Lord. I'm going to treat him as God and I'm going to honor his name because he's received his name is more excellent than they are. His excellent name. I should have asked Patrick to do a quick study. Um, How many songs of praise do you know that we sing to angels? Yeah. That's the same number I came up with, exactly, right? All those, those, those hymns of praise to Gabriel. Um, some, if we don't really know the words very well, we might think Harold is an angel, right? Hark, Harold, the angel. <laughs> no, no. And all that's telling me is listen to him. I'm not singing praise to Harold, right? How many songs of praise do we sing to Jesus? One that comes to mind called Praise the Name of Jesus, right? We can come up with a whole bunch of them. Well, that's the difference. He has an excellent name. An excellent name. How do I honor that name? That name, Jesus, which means Jehovah saves. Remember when he was born, he was told, the angel said, you'll name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. How can I honor the name of Jesus? I think it's put your trust in him for salvation. I'm going to honor his name by acknowledging that I've sinned against God and I need his forgiveness and Jesus provides it. I would invite you today to honor his name, putting your trust in Jesus. It's one of the ways in which you can honor him. You also honor him by worshiping him. You honor his name 
when you worship him. Worship we talk about as abandoning our will to God's. And we do this in a moment-by-moment, day-to-day part of life, isn't it? I've just got to continually be abandoning myself. But there's a special way in which I abandon myself here. Now, it's really easy, and and I remember in seminary, this was such a huge temptation. I remember being so convicted in seminary, and it began to to bring about a change in my own heart. Seminary students are, are, are some of the world's best at being critical human beings and judgmental of everybody. It's just an awful curse. Um, you go into every church service to criticize it and to find out what's wrong with it. And, and it's just, it's, it, I just saw it so ugly in, in my own heart. And I want to get rid of that. I don't come into worship to judge it. I come into work, worship to lay my life down. I'm just giving up everything. This is God. I abandon myself to you. And we may not do it right, but I don't care. You did. And I'm going to abandon myself to God. Why? Because his name is so much greater than the angels. He's got an excellent name. I'm also going to honor his name in ministry. This you'll have to follow me for just a, a, a little bit. Um, uh, first place I want to go is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, which tells us, but to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's what a spiritual gift is. It's a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And we talk about the church as the body of Christ, right? And you know, ordinarily when we see the term the body of Christ, it's within a context of ministry. It's the body ministering to the body. That's the idea of the body of Christ. It's not a body like the body of the Senate, which just means an organization. It means a body like different parts that minister to each other and strengthen one another and build one another. It means body like we are the physical representation of Jesus Christ here upon this earth. We are the flesh and blood of Jesus, if you will, here on this earth. And we live that out. And we live that out through ministry to one another. We have taken upon ourselves the name Christian. We've taken upon ourselves the name of Jesus, that his, He is our Lord, He is our Master. We carry His name. We walk about in His name. And a part of that then is our ministry to one another. That I'm going to commit myself to utilize that manifestation of the Spirit that is inside me to invest in the faith of other people. We talk about this all the time, and, and some may think that, oh, all, all you're doing is just recruiting for the different ministries of the church uh, when we talk about opportunities to serve. And, and it's, you know, it can look that way. I see that. But that's just not the case. I mean, that's, that's a, a, a side benefit. But the real issue is you've been made to minister. You've got the Holy Spirit inside you who's powerful and wanting to use you. We can help you find that spot. One of the things we want to do is not just plug holes, but find where you fit. What, what is the unique way that you reflect him and to help you be that in the body? Why? Because in that way, you will honor his name and treat him as God. Our theme this year is to follow Jesus. There's a, 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 a part of the motivation for that in, in my own life is knowing that the temptation is to follow the church. The longer a church has been around, the more generations have been a part of the church, the greater that danger. And I believe that partly by reading the Old Testament. 
Because when you read the Old Testament, you see that all the time, that the, the Old Testament church would continually just get into their, uh, the way that they, the, the church does things, and they would just follow the church, and God had to keep coming in and saying, no, it's me. You're doing all that I've asked, but you've forgotten me. And the, the prophets in particular are focused on that. And I, and I recognize that, and I want to avoid that for us as a church. It's, it's so strong a temptation that I can think of probably at least five pastors that I've heard their testimony, that they were pastors before they became Christians. One was a Baptist pastor who, in the middle of his ser- end of his sermon, he gave an altar call. Um, and in the altar call, he set his Bible down and he walked down the side of the church and he came up and he knelt down at the altar because he came to faith through his own preaching of the word. And I'm thinking, no, that's preaching. <laughs> that's, that's good stuff. It's, it's always been a reminder to me since I first heard that too, that that's why I call this the preacher pose. And it was because of hearing that testimony that I need to preach it here because it's easy for us to be in church and have not yet met Jesus. We can even move up into leadership in the church. We can even become pastors and have not come to know Jesus as our Savior yet. And I want to invite us as a church that we're going to follow Jesus and that I want, when I one day stand before God, it would be my desire that everyone within the congregation that I serve trusted in Jesus Christ personally. And that would be my hope. And so to do that, we need to first of all trust his message. We saw that last week. And this week we see we must trust his son. We must trust his son because he looks like God. He acts like God. And so we are going to treat him as God. Let's pray. Father, will you help us to get somewhat of a glimpse of what it means that you, Lord Jesus, that your Son, Jesus, is the radiance of your glory, the exact representation of your nature. That having made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Help us to know that he is as much better than the angels and he has inherited a greater name than they. Help us to trust the Son. Would you do this so that the Son will receive all the glory? Amen.